when you read the scriptures, you discover fairly soon that there's lots of talk about spiritual battle. The fact that you're a Christian doesn't just mean you enjoy peace and the presence of the Lord. You do that, but the Christian life is a battle. It's war. And the reason is because your sin joins up with Satan to try to attack your faith, to draw your heart away from Christ into other things, to weaken your confidence in God's promises. You've all been attacked this last week, haven't you? We all have been. We are at war. We're a people that need to be battling. Now, the good news is God gives us help with spiritual armor. You can read about it in Ephesians chapter 6. And I want to focus on one aspect of that armor, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, Old Testament and New Testament, a big sword. This is what he's given to us. But now there's a problem. And the problem is that some Christians are confused about the Old Testament. They have questions about the Old Testament. They aren't very confident about the Old Testament. They're not so sure about using that part of the sword. Here's a couple of questions I thought of. You may have them. You may know friends who have them. Some Christians think that the Old Testament teaches a different way of salvation than the New Testament does. Some think the Old Testament teaches we're saved by works, by obedience, instead of by faith alone in the Messiah, in Christ. That would trouble you. That's true, why use the Old Testament? Others think that because some of the Old Testament laws are no longer part of God's will for us, well, how can I be confident in the Old Testament if that's the case? Others think, they've heard, that Old Testament believers did not experience the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. So if that's their experience, that's not us. Why would we read the book that they lived under? And, and these questions, or questions like these, make some followers of Christ overlook the Old Testament, ignore the Old Testament, neglect the Old Testament. And they focus just on the New Testament. Now, we are very thankful for the New Testament. What a powerful, powerful book we have in the New Testament, books we have. But to focus just on the New Testament and to ignore the Old Testament is wrong, as I hope you'll see this morning. And it's also dangerous. Because the sword of the Spirit that God has given us is the whole Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. The big, big old sword. But think about it. The, the Old Testament is over two-thirds of your Bible. So if you're neglecting two-thirds of the sword, you're going to have a little sword. Instead of the big old sword that God gives us to do battle with, you're going to be left with less than one-third of the sword that God intended if you're focused just on the New Testament. Now, praise God for the New Testament, but I hope you'll leave here today understanding, let's use the whole sword. Old Testament and New Testament. In today's passage, Paul's going to tell us that God's law, the law of Moses, and by extension, the whole Old Testament, is good and righteous and holy. 
not that it was good and righteous, holy for Israel, but that it is good and righteous and holy for us today, right now for us, each of us today. Look at what Paul says in Romans 7, verse 12. Here's the conclusion, the last verse of today's passage. His conclusion is, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. When we understand this, we won't settle just for a little sword. We'll start using both Old Testament and New Testament to battle. We'll use the the big sword that God has given to us. Now, why is Paul so concerned about this issue of the Old Testament law, about Moses' law? Why is he so concerned? It's because some of what he's just written in the verses prior can make us think that the law of Moses is somehow sin, sinful, somehow wicked. Look at what he says in verse 7. This is the first verse of our passage for today. Paul says, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, or because, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Now, first of all, this verse shows us what Paul means by the word law. The law can mean different things in the Bible, but here we see exactly what Paul means by the word law. He quotes, you shall not covet, which is one of the Ten Commandments. So Paul here is talking about the Old Testament law of Moses, which includes the Ten Commandments. And Paul knows that what he said in previous verses could make us readers think there's something wrong with the law. The law is somehow sinful. The law is somehow not good. So let's start with this as our first question to unpack this passage. What has Paul said that could make us think the law is sinful? What did Paul say that could make us draw that conclusion? Is the law sin? Let me share with you a couple verses of what he just wrote. First one, look at Romans chapter 5, verse 20. Paul says, The law came in to increase the trespass. Yikes. I mean, if the law makes people sin more, how can the law be a good thing? It's a good question. Look at Romans chapter 7, verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law. When we put our trust in Christ, we die to the law, Paul says. Well, if the law is something we need to die to, how could that be a good thing for us now as Christians today? Romans 7, 5. Paul talks about how our sinful passions were aroused by the law. That doesn't sound good. I don't want something that's going to arouse sinful passions in me. And then one more, Romans chapter 7, verse 6. Paul says, but now we are released from the law. When we put our trust in Christ, we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. Well, now, if the law is holy and righteous and good, why would we need to be released from it? Can you feel the weight of those questions? This is why Paul wants to pause here in today's passage and raise the question, does this mean that the law is sinful? That's the question he raises. And his answer, of course, is is no. Let's raise this as our second question. Why is the law of Moses not sinful? The answer is in verse 7. Let's read it again. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. 
yet or because if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. The reason the law isn't sinful is because it tells us what sin is. If the law was sinful, it would be hiding what sin is. It would be helping us to avoid being confronted with our sin. Instead, the law straight up says, this is what sin is. It's this, it's this, it's this. The law exposes sin. The law reveals sin, which shows that the law can't be sin because it's against sin. You see the power of that, what Paul has just said here. Now, why is it so important that we have something that shows us what sin is? Think about it like this. Every human being, deep down in our hearts, we know that there's a God. And we know that God says some things are right and some things are wrong. We've all got that deep down in our hearts. It's in our conscience. Paul said that back in Romans 1 and Romans chapter 2. But there's a problem, isn't there? And that is we can rationalize and we can justify and we can dull our consciences so that we start to think that what God says is right is really wrong and that what God says is wrong is really right. You can see that in society around us. And we've all felt that at times. So we have these dull consciences. We can rationalize, we can justify, but God in his love and mercy helps us. He gives us his law, written laws, written in stone in the time of Moses, written in scriptures now that we have in the Bible. God gives us his law, and one of God's laws is, you shall not covet. One of the Ten Commandments. Now, our our dulled consciences can wonder, what's wrong with coveting? What's wrong with a little coveting? What's wrong with thinking? daydreaming, I'd be really happy and really fulfilled if I had one of that MG I saw down in the parking lot this this morning. That's what would really make me happy and fulfilled. That MG would be such a cool little sports car to drive around. So what's wrong with coveting? It's just a little harmless fantasy. What's wrong with that? But It's not just a harmless fantasy. It's a lie. Coveting is a lie. The law says, God's law says that we should not covet because that MG won't make me or you really happy or fulfilled. The only way that we can be truly happy and truly fulfilled is in knowing God through Jesus. The only way is knowing his beautiful presence in Christ and the joy that he gives and the the comfort that he gives is so strong it can carry us through suffering. It can strengthen us against temptation. It's beautiful. It is heart-filling, the joy of knowing God through Jesus. And see, daydreaming about that car will take our hearts farther away from God. That's why it's so dangerous, coveting. Think about it like this. God created each of us so that we have a longing in our hearts for security and for pleasure and for joy. We all long for that. But the burning question is, where do we find it? We're all on a hunt for pleasure and security and joy. But where is it? Where do we find it? 
And to answer that, God gives us his commands. God gives us his law. God's commands, think about it this way, are like a treasure map. A treasure map showing us how to find the the treasure of joy that we're all longing for and seeking. How do we find this treasure of joy, which means knowing God through the person of Jesus? Where do we find that? And the commands show us which paths lead us to that treasure. Some paths lead us to the treasure. Some paths lead us away from the treasure. And God's commands show us both. God's commands show us which paths lead us to the treasure. What what paths lead us to the treasure of knowing God through Jesus? Well, the path of trusting that God will forgive all of my sins through what the Messiah Jesus did in dying on the cross. Just like we sang about earlier this morning, that's a beautiful path to take. Also, the path of trusting that God is my all-satisfying treasure. Nothing else will satisfy me. He alone. The path of obeying God, not to impress people or to try to earn something or earn salvation from him. No, that's not what it's about. Obeying God because I want more of him. I want to know him more. So God's law gives paths that will draw us closer to knowing God through Jesus. And God's law tells us what paths will lead us away from knowing God through Jesus. Like the path of coveting things besides God. That'll draw us away. The path of like lying or stealing, obviously. A path of trying to impress other people or trying to earn merit or salvation before God by my works. No, 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 no. Those paths will take you away from God. And so God's commands, God's law, is like a treasure map leading us to what we all are longing for, the security and the joy and the pleasure and the love of knowing God through Jesus. So Paul tells us that the reason God's law is not sinful is because it shows us what sin is. It shows us what will lead us away from knowing God through Jesus, and it shows us what will lead us to knowing God through Jesus. God's law is not sinful. It's a treasure map. It's good. It's precious. It's valuable, that treasure map. So Paul has just told us why the law isn't sinful, but he knows he needs to say more. He can't move on to another topic yet. Because as I read earlier, Paul has said some pretty negative things about the law. He said that the law increases trespasses. What about that, Paul? He says the law arouses sinful passions. That can't be a good thing. He says that we need to die to the law. That's what happens to us when we put our trust in Christ, that we need to be released from the law because the law used to hold us captive. So, Paul, what about those things? So let's raise that as our next question. How did the law become such a problem? Sounds like the law is a problem. Increasing sin, we got to die to it, we're held captive by it. How did the law become such a problem? And Paul tells us in verses 8 through 11. Let me summarize Paul's answer. And we'll go through verses 8 through 11, and I'll show you how he says that in those verses. Here's Paul's answer. The reason the law became such a problem isn't because of the law. It's because of our sin. We're the problem. The law is a problem because of our sin. 
our sin took this beautiful treasure map, this precious, valuable treasure map, which would lead us to God through Christ, and distorted that treasure map, and twisted that treasure map, and made it into a list of just bare do's and don'ts, which we either rebel against, or we deceive ourselves into thinking that we can keep it to impress other people, maybe even to earn some salvation from God, and that that's what the law is all about, is us looking good before other people. A list of do's and don'ts which we either rebel against or we pursue with self-righteousness. We've turned it from a treasure map into a list of do's and don'ts that we rebel against or that we pursue with self-righteousness. That's what Paul says in these verses. Start with verses 8 and 9. Look at what he says. But sin, here's the problem, sin, underline that one, seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. Let's, let's talk about this. What's, what's going on? Before the law came to us, sin was dead in the sense that it was there. We were sinning, but sin hadn't exploded into its full rebellion against God. We hadn't seen sin's full wickedness displayed yet. But then one day we heard God's law. The treasure map said, you shall not covet. Coveting will not lead you to the treasure of knowing God, the joy you're looking for. When we heard that, our sin and our pride became enraged. No one's going to tell me what to do. I call the shots for my life. I can decide for myself how to live. And that's not a treasure map. That's just somebody telling me what to do, a list of do's and don'ts. And besides, I like coveting. Rebellion flares up, and we see the, the full range, the, the full horror of our sinfulness. No one's going to tell me what to do. And so God's law, the treasure map, stirred up that sin stirred you up to pursue all kinds of coveting. But again, what was the problem? Was the problem God's law? Was the problem the treasure map? Or was the problem our sin? Church, what was the problem? Okay, we're, we're getting that. It's our sin. Clearly, it was our sin, not God's treasure map. Our sin took this beautiful treasure map, which God has given to us, and twisted it, distorted it, turned it into a, just a bare list of do's and don'ts, which we just said, no one's going to tell me what to do. I'm not going to do that stuff. And sin just exposed that way. And Paul says in verses 10 and 11 that there's another way that that happens, a little different. And the reason I say it's different is because of that word deceived in verses 10 and 11. Let's read those verses. Notice the word deceived. Verse 10. The very commandment that promised life, the treasure map, pointing us towards life, 
The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, there it is again, seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. Now, a number of commentators, Bible scholars, point out that that word deceived there shows that this is something different than what we saw in verses 8 and 9. This is different because in verses 8 and 9, sin didn't deceive us. We just heard the commandment and just said, no, I'm not going to obey. I'm going to rebel. No deception going on there. That's just rebellion. But in this case, sin is deceiving us. How? How are we being deceived in verses 10 and 11? It's like this. There you are. You hear God's law. You shall not covet. But your sinful pride, my sinful pride, we're, we're more interested in impressing other people, looking good before other people than in meeting God. I, I, want, I want to look good. I want to get some glory from people around me. Sinful pride makes us think, I can obey that command about not coveting. But I think I could obey all those commands pretty well. I could obey those commands probably more than the average person. I'm going to be looking pretty good here. I'm liking this list of do's and don'ts. I'm going to look good before other people, and I think I could even earn some blessings from God. I could even earn some like salvation, some forgiveness from God. And so we deceive ourselves. We think we're obeying God. We're not obeying God at all. That's not at all what God's calling us to do. He wants us moving towards him, loving him, knowing him, letting him fill and satisfy our hearts. That's what the pathways are all about. We've forgotten all that. We've turned it into a list of do's and don'ts that make us look better than other people around us. And we're hoping we're going to get some applause from him as well because he's so impressed with our self-righteousness. Deceived. We think we're obeying. That's what the Pharisees were doing, if you think about it. Remember, Jesus said that the Pharisees did everything that they did to be noticed by their people. They weren't looking Godward. They were saying, did they see? Did they, are they hearing this long prayer? Are they noticing that I'm sitting in the seat of honor in the synagogue? It was all about impressing other people. They ignored. The Pharisees ignored what, the God, what God's word, what God's law said about the Messiah coming, that we need to be forgiven the animal sacrifices, which picture what the Messiah would do so we can be completely forgiven and humbling ourselves before God, asking him to forgive us. He will transform us. He will fill us. They ignored all of that stuff and just strutted their righteousness so people would be impressed with them. And they thought they were obeying the law perfectly. Remember what Paul said. Paul was a Pharisee before he was saved. Philippians 3 verse 8, he says, I was blameless, I thought, in regards to the law deceived is what Paul was. That's why he talks about this here. Sin deceives us. It turns the treasure map, which will lead us to God through Christ, and it turns it into a list of do's and don'ts, which we pursue self-righteously to impress other people and hopefully even impress God. How did the law become such a problem, Grace Church? Was it the law? No. What was it? It was sin. It was my sin. It was your sin. It was our sin. Our sin took this beautiful map, leading us to the treasure of knowing God, and twisted it 
changed it into just a bare list of do's and don'ts, which we either rebelled against, I'm not obeying that, no one's telling me what to do, or which we obeyed out of self-righteousness, trying to impress people around us with no thought of God, except maybe he'll be impressed with us and we'll earn some salvation before him. Totally distorting the good law that God gave to us. Because, see, in both those cases, that's what we need to die to. We need to die to the law as a list of do's and don'ts which we are rebelling against. We need to die to that. That's not God's law. We need to die to a list of do's and don'ts which we're trying to obey out of self-righteousness. We need to die to that. Have you died to those laws? Or are you still living in relation to one of those laws? We need to die to that. That's why Paul talks so strongly the way he does. But again, the problem isn't the law. The problem is our sin. That's what our sin did. So Paul's trying to explain why he has spoken so negatively about the law, and he wants us to see it's not because of the law. The law is not sin. It's because of our sin, which has turned the law into that ugly thing, which was oppressing us, which we needed to die to. So how does Paul conclude? Verse 12. Last verse of this section. So, therefore, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. It's holy, it's beautiful, it's precious, it's righteous, it's just, it's exactly in, in, in accord with all of reality. It's righteous, and it's good, it's useful, it's helpful. We need it, we want it. That's the law, that's the Ten Commandments, that's the Old Testament. It's not sinful. Holy, righteous, good. It's part of God's treasure map, which leads us to the joy of knowing God through Christ now and forever. Which means, Grace Church, we should love the Old Testament. We should read the Old Testament. We should study the Old Testament. Memorize the Old Testament. And now at this point, as I was thinking about this message, I thought, okay, I'll bet you some people have a couple of other questions that Paul hasn't addressed in this passage about the Old Testament. And I just want to raise three of them and give you very short answers. They deserve long, longer answers in this, but just give you some short answers so that maybe you can start thinking and doing some study of your own on this, in case these are some of your questions. Some other questions we can have which can make us maybe not feel very confident about the Old Testament. I mentioned them earlier. One is, are some Old Testament laws no longer important, no longer God's will for us? And the answer is yes, right? Like take the, the food laws that are in Leviticus, which he told, he told Israel, don't eat these certain kinds of food, long list of what they should not eat. Jesus said, those laws are no longer important. Followers of Christ don't follow those laws anymore. We don't need to. It's not part of God's will. But that doesn't mean the Old Testament was wrong. It just means that God's plan is no longer to have his people be a distinct nation separated from the other nations by what they eat. That was God's will in the Old Testament. That's not God's plan for the church today. He doesn't want us to be separated from the nations. He wants us to go to the nations. 
So the fact that some laws are no, Old Testament laws are no longer God's will should not shake our confidence in the Old Testament. Second question. Does the law teach a different way of salvation than the gospel, than the New Testament? The answer is no. Both the law and the gospel, the Old Testament and the New Testament, teach us that we can't earn our salvation by works. Don't even try. That's boastfulness before God. That's sin. We need to own up to our sinfulness and put our trust. If you're in the Old Testament, put our trust in what the Messiah would do when he comes on the cross. And if we're New Testament Christians, we put our trust in what the Messiah did do 2,000 years ago on the cross. No self-righteousness, no salvation by works, salvation by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in the Messiah Christ alone. The Old Testament taught, it's what the New Testament teaches. Same way of salvation, both. Third question, didn't the Old Testament believers have to live without the the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit? Not at all. Not at all. I mean, no one can have faith without the work of the Holy Spirit changing their hearts. The reason you have faith in Christ right now is because of what the Holy Spirit has done. No one can love God without the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Luke makes it really clear that Old Testament believers experience the Holy Spirit by mentioning Zechariah and Elizabeth. Read this, early chapters of Luke, before Jesus came. Zechariah and, and, and Elizabeth, Zechariah and Elizabeth, Old Testament believers, two times, Luke says, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Old Testament believers were filled with the Holy Spirit. So that shouldn't change or weaken our confidence in the Old Testament. Also, I mean, same with Abraham. He was filled with the Spirit. It doesn't say explicitly, but you read about him. David, Samuel, Ruth, Sarah. So Old Testament believers did live with the presence of the power. Remember Psalm 51, David says, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Remember that? Okay, those are just a couple of questions. And those are short answers, I know. Each of those could deserve at least a sermon. But hopefully get the ball rolling so you're thinking about this, doing some more study on it yourself. And this is crucial because we, we need to learn that along with using the New Testament, We need to use the Old Testament. This is God's intention for us. He's given us a big sword, Old and New Testament. He wants to use the full sword, sword of the Spirit. So let me close with a verse that Paul writes at the very end of the book of Romans and then a personal testimony of how I've experienced this. Here's the verse, Romans 15.4. It's an amazing verse. Paul says this, for whatever was written in former days, that's the Old Testament. It's talking about the Old Testament here. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. Our instruction. New Testament believers. The Old Testament was written for us, our instruction. That through endurance, And through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So Paul's talking about the Old Testament here. 
the Old Testament was not written just for Israel. It was written for Israel, but not just for Israel. It was written for us. It was written for our instruction, Paul says. It was written for New Testament believers. It was written for Grace Church. The Old Testament was written for Grace Church. Do you realize that? It was written for you. God had the Holy Spirit have Moses write Genesis for you to read. And the book of Psalms for you to read. And the book of Isaiah for you to read. Part of the sword. That's what he wants. And notice the benefits that come to us. Two words. Encouragement of the scriptures. We might have hope. Through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Let me share how I experienced the Old Testament part of the sword of the Spirit giving me that. A few weeks ago, I suddenly found myself just weighed down with guilt over some way long past sin. I, I'd confessed it in the past. I'd turned from it. I knew I was forgiven through Christ. I was assured. I knew God loved me. It was a done deal. You know, signed, sealed, delivered. It was, it was over. But you know how it goes, right? Satan is the accuser of us, and he will bring things into mind to remind us. But, but remember that? And our, our hearts will just sink with discouragement. We'll become weighed down, right? So I was, I was, I was, my heart was sinking, and I was weighed down. I was feeling far from God. It was Satan's the accuser of the brethren, what Revelation tells us. But God reminded me that I have the sword of the Spirit. And the verse that he brought into my mind was from the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. Look at what we read there. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. Beautiful. Verse 6. The Lord passed before him, passed before Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord. The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. I love those, that last line there, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Isn't that a little bit redundant, Moses? I mean, isn't iniquity the same thing as transgression and transgression the same thing as sin? Yes. Well, why be so redundant? Because we're slow to get it. Forgiving iniquity? Okay. And transgression? Okay. And sin? Well, that covers them all three times over. Exactly. Forgiving iniquity and transgression, and sin. And this verse beautifully pictures what God does through what Jesus accomplished on the cross for everyone who puts their trust in him. And so as I thought about this verse, as I prayed over this verse, I had the sword there slashing away at the accusations from Satan. God used this Old Testament verse to attack my guilt, to destroy my discouragement. It's powerful. I was assured of forgiveness. I knew God loved me. I knew 
Christ had paid for that sin. I was restored. I was restored. Grace Church, God has given us, given you, the sword of the Spirit. Every day I have to fight. I'm, I'm sure you do too. Every day there's attacks coming, temptations coming, doubts coming, fears coming, worries coming. Every day we have to fight. And God has given us the sword of the Spirit. A big old sword. Old Testament and New Testament. This is what he's given to us. A big, powerful sword. So my encouragement to you is use all of it. Use the entire sword. New Testament, absolutely, powerfully. And Old Testament, powerfully. Let's pray together. Stand up. Thank you, Father, for your mercy and your grace and your forgiveness in Christ. Thank you for giving us such a big, powerful sword to battle temptation, to battle discouragement, to battle fears, worries, accusations. Thank you for the big, powerful sword you've given to us. I pray, Lord, and we pray for each other. Would you strengthen us this week in the battle that we would fight, that we would fight, and that we would fight with the, the big sword, the whole sword. New Testament, yes. And Old Testament, yes. Thank you for the weapons you've given to us and that you will help us to resist and to fight when we need to. Do that this week, we pray. In Jesus' name.